My name is Tom Johnson, and you may know me through my blog, I'dRatherBeWriting.com, um, and I like to write a lot about whatever experience I'm having in tech comms, and it's given me a lot of visibility in, in the tech comms space. Um, and I also record my presentations, by the way, if that's all right. Uh, if, you, if you don't want to, uh, if you offer a comment that you don't want to, to have appear on the recording, let me know. But for the most part, people um, appreciate it when you, know, you, you record something and make it available. <clears throat> um, I'm going to talk about a, a subject that is pretty near and dear to my heart. Uh, I think that um, if you were to make like a, oh, that's not very good. Okay, if you, were to, if you were to make a timeline about the evolution of help material, what would it look like? Um, wow, that's just getting worse. <laughs> it's kind of cool like that. Let me see if we can jimmy rig it. Okay, so what would the, uh, sorry. Yeah, maybe I just need to unscrew the things down, the little legs. Don't they usually have a, a little screw? Yeah. Okay. Let's see this You guy. are helping us more than you know. There we go. Sweet. Okay. Let me see. There we go. All right. So, Owen, let's see if this guy's in focus. There we go. There we go. Okay. This is my fictitious timeline about the evolution of help material. So, I in 1960, maybe people said, Oh, help, help sucks, you know. In 1970, help starts to get better. 1980, help is decent, help is useful. And, and by now, you know, help rocks. People love it. You meet a technical writer. Uh, people who are users meet technical writers and just give them a warm embrace. And they're like, I love what you guys do. You know, thank you so much for your work. But that's really not what happens, right? Usually you meet somebody and you say, hey, I'm a technical writer. And they're like, Oh, you're one of those guys. You you write the manual. Oh, I hate help. Or they give you some some little sarcastic comment. And um, why is it why is it like that? You know, it's not as if we're building rockets. We're not doing anything incredibly um, sophisticated that we couldn't uh, evolve and change our help so that it's really really useful. And by the way, this is just my opinion. You know, I haven't like surveyed people for the last fifty years or anything. But I think that. This is why. A lot of times in, in tech comm circles, in conferences, events, uh, webinars, whatever, people talk about publishing. It's all about like you know, efficient publishing and managing the content, single sourcing it. And the whole discussion about the content usually gets minimized. And what users really care about is the content. They don't really care about anything regarding publishing usually. And I've noticed this uh, from my blog quite a bit. Um, I can redesign the entire theme, uh, implement some new navigation and totally new skin there, and people don't care. People, people read the words, right? They may not even go to the site, right? But, um, I mean, they may, they may pull it in through a feed or something, so they don't even know about the, the actual site's appearance. But in, in general, I think we, we focus an inordinate amount of attention on publishing over content. And I think that is why um, the user experience isn't really what it could be. So I decided to uh, do a survey a while back asking why is it that users can't find what they're looking for in help? Um, th this question could really be, you know, why does help suck? Well, what is wrong with help? Because if, if you find your answer in help, it's usually meeting its, its job, right? It's doing what it was intended to do. So why is help failing, essentially? 
And now this is an informal survey. Um, I'm not an academic, so I didn't like you know do any kind of scientific method or anything. But I, I put it out on my blog, and I got about 200 people to respond. And these, this is uh, the response. Okay, so these are the less important reasons, and then, then I'm going to move into the predominant reasons. So we'll start at the very bottom. Uh, the, so these are the reasons that really weren't that important to people. Now, caveat again, most of the people who read my blog are technical writers, so it's not as if these are actual users. And, and these reasons that I threw out were just kind of uh, a general scattering of reasons. But 10%, the help is written for a user way beyond the level of the actual user. Not really why people can't find what they're looking for. The user, the user wants to read a PDF version, but only HTML is available. Not really that big of a deal. The help is written by an outside tech writer isolated from the whole process, the business environment. Not a huge deal. The help is only available online, but you're using the product offline. Again, not that big of a deal. The help is written in an intimidating formal language that users find off-putting and unfriendly. Uh, only 12% people said that was why they couldn't find what they're looking for. The content is out of date or wrong, perhaps referring to a totally different version. Um, only, what was that? 21%. The user, the user opens the help but is immediately intimidated because it's 600 pages long, 21%. The user is too lazy to search the help in a thorough enough way to find the answer, 21%. The answer is in text form, but the user likes visuals and so skips over long text blocks, 25%. Uh, the table of contents in the help file is too massive to allow users to find anything. The user's question involves a feature not available, but the help only lists what users can do. Now, this is actually one of my pet peeves, right? People, people say, no, we're not going to list what the, what the software can't do, except for when users really are trying to do that thing. 35% uh, users just don't trust help material, so they don't even look at it. They just turn to Google and find random websites. 35%. And the top one, the user looks in the wrong place. Uh, the topic could appear in different sections and they're just looking in the wrong part. So these are, these are reasons that you know, didn't trend as well. Now, these are the top responses. Okay, so these are the seven responses that I think are responsible for what makes content really sizzle. Uh, <clears throat> we'll start at the bottom again. 36%, the help has been fragmented and dispersed over many small topics, so the help is, is a maze. Uh, let's go to the one uh, uh, above it. 50%. The user searches for the answer, but the help's poor SEO prevents the answer from surfacing. Uh, for the next one over, the answer is an isolated task, but the user needs a more connected beginning to end workflow. Uh, the next one, the help uses terms unfamiliar to the user. Maybe they're, they're saying gizmo instead of widget. Uh, top row, the help doesn't provide concrete examples that make the concepts understandable. The answer is buried in a long page, but the user only spends a couple of minutes max scanning the page. And finally, the help is, oh, the, well, let's scoot that over for you. <laughs> the answer isn't in the help because the help only sticks with obvious information. So, based on these, uh, oh, there we go, ingenious, okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, 
so b based on these responses, I have devised a game, okay, or based on these problems that people have. And this game is going to be fun. <laughs> Remember, I work for a gamification company, so our whole job is to make things game-like. By the way, does anybody, are you guys familiar with the term gamification? Okay, so yeah, um, we're all about like taking regular work context, giving people points and rewards and badges and sending them on missions and you know tracking all that stuff and integrating it. So I thought, why not try to try to integrate some kind of game, but it's all offline, so it's a little harder. I have, um, now I've simplified this game. It used to be more complicated and people just weren't doing it, so like. <laughs> take, take one and pass it down. This is, this, is, this is how I am going to try to engage you. Each of those seven responses that we just took a look at, these, <coughs> these top kind of problems in health, and again, you know, not super scientific, but these are what 200 people agreed upon were major problems with health. Okay, so what you're going to try to do, and you're not going to do this all at once, but you're going to try to come up with a solution at each level and kind of climb up to the top. Um, <clears throat> before I used to say, okay, and once you, once you finish this, I want you to take a picture of it and post it on Twitter and see who gets the most retweets. But nobody ever did that. So I said, you know what? <laughs> it's just a way to try to engage you while you're here. Any questions, by the way? Okay. So we're going to start. Now this is, oh, sorry. This is my random notes. Here's one. That's, uh, yeah, so I was, I was like, no, I was just put, taking some notes. Okay, so um, level one. Now this one, this one is the most controversial, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, hopefully we won't get derailed on, on level one and never make it to level two. Information is fragmented. Okay, thirty-six percent of the people said that users can't find the answer because the help has been fragmented and dispersed over many small topics. So the help is is just a maze. So take a minute or so and jot down what you think the solution to information fragmentation is. And, and then I'll go into what I think the solution is. And then we'll have some people share if they want um, their, their solutions. So I'll just take, give you a minute at each level to go through and come up with your own solution. Okay, so my first, my first approach is to think goals and not concept or task. You know, Dita has been a great like advancement in the tech comm field. I think it, you know having a structure that can you can use to manipulate content is awesome. But a lot of people think that because in Dita you you simplify things to a concept or a task, and a concept is something that can have different paragraphs explaining things. A task is a numbered list, and in Dita these are separate files, right? You can't have like an official task in with a lengthy concept. Uh, so, so you have all this separation. A lot of people publish these out and they have their concepts here and then they have their tasks here and, and the two don't really mix. Well, that may be fine like in your source files as you're building things out because you're conforming to a certain type and following patterns that are predictable, but it was never meant to be this enforced kind of output where always concepts were like in one place and tasks were in another because a lot of times when a user has a goal, like for example, I want to make my computer run faster. 
uh, they're not looking for a, a concept and later a task. They're trying to achieve something. So a lot of times you need to, to combine the two. Um, there's been a recent book published by Mark Baker. Have you guys uh, seen his blog, Every Page is Page One? And he's, he's really kind of giving this, this tradition of separating tasks from concepts a hard time. He says that, that really, um, I think I have another slide on this, yeah. He says you should treat every page as if the user's coming to that page uh, without any other kind of context. You know, this is their, their, the first page they land on. And it should have sort of a complete um, set of information, a complete set of whatever concepts, tasks, reference tables, other kinds of information you need to achieve a goal. Um, undoubtedly, what happens when you, when, you when you treat every page as page one is that these little complete information sets sometimes get to be longer pages, right? You have lengthier amounts of information. Um, there's to the extreme, and Mark totally disagrees with this, but uh, this, this is a, a trend that you, you have maybe seen. Um, single page docs, where you pretty much just package everything onto one page. Uh, this is a guy who gave a, a talk at Write the Docs, a, a conference for like API technical writers, uh, or actually API type people, a lot of developers, things. I, actually, Andrew recommended that I check this, <laughs> this site out, and it was great. Uh, but this guy, Brandon Phillips, he, he I, got, I have a demo of what he's kind of recommending. Let's see if this works. Um, I could actually go to the site, but I just thought I'd do it like this. So this is a core OS documentation. You can see as you scroll down, um, like the little nav on the right highlights. And they just jam all the stuff on this one page, um, which kind of works maybe for technical documentation that's like an API where you've got to set up functions. But it's really interesting. There's quite a few of these sort of sites now. Um, it's it's, it's uh, interesting. Another example, I think I scrolled that long. Is it unlike a Jitimap though? Yeah, no, it, you could do it with a Jitimap. Yeah, I think you use the chunk two attribute at the map level and everything's under there. But um, okay, so here's another example of kind of a, this is more, <clears throat> more of an every, every page is page one type thing. Let's say in Adobe Illustrator, you wanna use the pen tool. Well, you've got quite a bit of information about using the pen tool here. Um, Finish drawing a path, draw straight lines followed by curve. So each of these, in some, in some help systems, they'll like separate each of these tasks out into their own page, which then creates this like jumping around effect and, and you have to piece together all the different parts of information you want. But this is actually quite a long topic, but it's sort of complete. You know, it's got everything, well not everything, but a lot of what you would need to figure out the, the mysterious pen tool in Adobe Illustrator. No, no. I, I think this is, this is without any kind of sidebar navigation. They do have at the very top, uh, let me play it again and I'll stop it right there. Come on. Oh, uh, let me go back. They do have at the top a, a, an on page table of contents. There we go, right up here. So, so that, that is something that you know, I think you definitely need if you have a long page, right? You don't want to. You don't want to force people to just scan down and say, is it here, is it here, is it here? But, uh, but it's definitely kind of a, a trend away from this short topic sort of um, authoring. Depending on the tool you're using, you can mm -hmm. give each of those uh, entries in the 
table of contents is expandable. So instead of having to scroll down or click down, you could expand just the one you wanted to look at at any given yeah. time. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. Uh, or at least under the heading ones, they could have a mini POC for each heading within that topic. Uh, another way to navigate through each of these. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the collapsible stuff. Um, it kind of hits a sore spot on me because I, <laughs> a few months ago, I was totally sold on the collapsible sections. And I went through and I took all my like heading twos and made them collapsed. I was like, this is great, you know, they just expand whatever they want. But I ran into like four different problems and, and it got to be hairy. Like um, the, the module I was using wasn't implemented very well to, to kind of automate it. But, but it's definitely an option. It's just, it, it, it's tricky. Um, the, the H2 tags are actually really helpful. And this module I was using used its own custom coding and then trying to link to different sections was problematic and stuff. But awesome for many contexts. Okay, so. Go ahead, go ahead, Rachel. <clears throat> I was going to say, one of the problems we found with the, the collapse thing is that you cannot search for the collapse content. Which is page. Yeah, yeah that's, that was one of the issues we ran into. Like, well, the terms actually appeared in the search, but when a user landed on the page, the, the collapse section doesn't automatically expand. So the user have to kind of expand them all, which then you think, oh, I'll just add an expand all button. Uh, which, you know, then you got to bake it into your templates. It's complicated, right? So um, then, then if you bake it, in, bake it into a template, but you have some pages that don't have all the collapse sections, you have some pages that are going to have the expand all and some that aren't, so you have to write conditional logic. And so anyway, uh, so I want to hear what you guys, come back to this um, first level one. W w does anybody want to share a solution that they have for information fragmentation? Did I see you raise your hand? Really? How to recombine stuff. Because finally, somebody got enough feedback from enough customers, enough salespeople, enough, that it sucks. People hate it. They don't want to be jumping around. They want explanations of why they're doing these things and occasionally how to do them, not jumping off with links to somewhere else. And, and we don't even, generally, don't even have links to anything else, so that's too complicated. Developers don't want that stuff. So, uh, huh. Interesting to hear that. What, what what company is that that you work for? Just well, this is it used to be Sybase, but now oh. it's blocked by SAP. So it's the it's the global it's the mobility part of Sybase, not the big database team, huh. but the uh, SAP mobile platform. Okay. All that stuff. And uh, so you so the writers years they've been working on this and people have been complaining all the time, arguing with the editors about you know trying to say well, but they need this is sub-minimal, you know, it's, an, it's in, 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 uh, insufficientalism, you know, <laughs> Insufficientalism, <laughs> awesome. Because it, it became a fetish, just minimize your word count, you know. Minimalicious. That, 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 <laughs> you know, and uh, don't put in a version of, like, they, they know what it is, you know, they know, don't say anything that they should know, because they know what products they're dealing with and everything like that. And, you know, we're, we're telling them to go places on, on the internal website and search for a link and not tell them what the name of the link is, the product, <laughs> you know? And huh. the users 
don't like that. They get very uncomfortable, and pretty soon they're on the phone asking for somebody to hold their hand. You know? Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> that come back, well, I can't get Oracle to work with it anymore. <laughs> Stuff yeah. like that. Uh, that's great. That's great to hear that. You know, I, so the writers yeah. are serious. That's good. The CMS you use and the way you implement Vita can have a lot to do with that, though, too. Because if, if you're writing oh, yeah. reusable content, you know, whether you want to call it chunks and whether you're using Vita or not, there are ways to do that and build narrative around um, reusable <coughs> content. And so I, I think there's a place, place yeah. for it myself. And just write yeah. uh, monolithic, big old fat pages of stuff. <laughs> have fun with that. I mean, that's called yeah. Word or Printmaker <laughs> or something. Yeah. Still maintain it in small chunks, but present it as complete pieces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I'm not necessarily advocating that single doc page model. You know, it's just kind of the extreme of this idea. And, and as you point out, like uh, you, you could totally do this in Dita. I, I think there's just a lot of misconception that like they have to be separate. You know, so mm -hmm. I think uh, definitely having them separate in your source files allows for more reuse. It's easier to uh, combine them in different outputs. You know, so. Good, okay, should we go on to the next, next uh, level? Does anybody else have a comment they wanted to share about information fragmentation? Andrew. So one of the things that occurred to me is um, if, if this content is in a wiki, potentially, you can measure how often it gets hit and push to the top the more popular answers. Oh. So aggregate all the content, like a, everything is page one. Okay. But then take the segments that are get, get most Attention, get read most often, hmm. potentially get better feedback, and artificially push those. Yeah. How does no, the fragmentation problem? <coughs> you aggregate. My idea was to aggregate all, all of the answers, like, like the every, every page is page one screed, but take segments of that. So if a lot of people are looking for certain information that may be separate, you could potentially combine those on a similar page or something through analytics. Yeah. Okay. I think you need analytics that are more than Google, though. Yeah. I don't know that you can, uh, if you have a, you know, a large page, you can't know how often they're reading it. Not that I'm aware. Yeah. But the gist of it is, is uh, I mean, page length it itself doesn't really give you a guidance on how long something should be. We can never say every page should be at least 800 to 1,200 words or anything. You have to look at the goal. Like, does this is this complete in terms of helping the user achieve this goal? And if so, what? What kinds of information does a user need to do that, right? So, all right, this next one um, is terms, terminology. 43% of the people said the help uses terms unfamiliar to the user. And this is problematic because uh, if a user is gonna search for information, which you know they do a lot of times, if they don't have the right words, how are they gonna find it? So here's an example. Let me find this. Ah, there we go. I got this in the wrong place. What do you call this thing? Don't shout it out yet. Just look, the, the blue thing is what I'm looking at, not the can. <laughs> what do you call it? Blue thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Blue thing Go ahead and say what the different names you have for this this thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Neoprene. Neoprene. So this is. This is one of those things that has uh, 10 different names and depending upon the culture you're in. Um, 
Donna Spencer actually gives this example in her, her book on information architecture is that you have to figure out the right names so that people know how to find what they're looking for. But often in software you have stuff that doesn't really have a name or the name is something that people wouldn't really think normally. Uh, I'm sure you've documented lots of things. One interface I worked on had a button called Omnibus. Now try to guess what that would do. <laughs> Unless you're an insider to the lingo, you'd have no idea. So what do you do in these situations? Let me jump back to the thing. What do you do in these situations where you don't have the right terms? Well, um, one other example. This is, uh, I was working with a product called Datasift. Uh, we were trying to use Datasift to figure out uh, if people tweet a certain keyword, like, I love Badgeville, right? And you want to give them a reward to try to, you know, get them to tweet about your product. Um, how do you know that they tweeted that word? Well, Datasift is the company that will look through Twitter's database API, through an API, and say, oh, this person has, has tweeted the word Badgeville, and let you know. Well, there's all kinds of rules about that, right? Like, well, what if it's uh, not the right case, or what if there's a space between it, what if there's punctuation, um, things like that. So I was trying to figure out the rules. Tokenization is, is what this thing is called. Right? I never found this. It took me days to find this. Um, tokenization and chunking. So uh, this is just another example where you have words. I'm sure that's the right word. Uh, from a programmer's point of view, this is what tokenization is. But for, for me, I was totally uh, lost trying to find it. So one of the people uh, who's really a, a leader in, in the space of findability is Peter Morville. Have you guys heard of Peter Morville before? He's uh, more on the information science side. Um, he says that <clears throat> basically um, whenever people make a search, uh, they, they get a little bit of information which then makes their next search more aware. So, so for example, somebody starts out searching for get widget for RSS. Maybe they're trying to add something to their blog. They don't really know what it's called, but they throw up these, these keywords. In the results, maybe they see a bunch of things that talk about modules. So the user starts to get a little more aware and, and think, oh, maybe I need a, a feed module so that so the user casts a new search. You know, and then in the results, maybe the user sees a bunch of stuff about data feed modules and learns a new word. And then the user casts a new search that's even more refined based on the previous searches, you know, options to set up data feed modules. And then finally, finally the user lands on the right topic. But it's through this kind of browsing and searching experience in tandem that, that informs them. So if you're trying to work around these, these difficult keywords, you, you, the best practice is to try to teach the user what the right terminology is. You, know, you could, I mean, in, in the best world, you would just use the term most familiar to the user, but of course that doesn't always work out. So if you kind of pepper your content with either glossary definitions or explanations that equate the two in some place, they're gonna get smarter with each search. Once they reach that page, they get smarter. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, so here's another example that's really difficult. So let's say you're making, and this is the kind of stuff I, I do all the time is these little code tutorials. Um, let's say that you have some function, and it's just kind of uh, Greek text obviously, but you have some function and you're trying to explain it. Well, the function has different methods and rules and techniques that may be familiar to some audiences, but not to others. So if you've got a, a senior level JavaScript developer, he'll look at this and he or she will look at this and say, 
this needs no explanation. You know, why did you add a comma there? This is, this is like two plus two for them. But for somebody who's never even looked at JavaScript, they'll look at this and say, I have no idea what that's doing. So um, how do you write for, for this sort of scenario where terms and techniques aren't familiar to one, but they are to another? Well, I, I suggest different paths, paths through the content. So you start out maybe with a summary of what the code does, uh, just briefly. And then add a few comments within the code that will appeal to the advanced developer. And then below the code, all right, the advanced developer has quit reading, and he or she is moving off. Maybe they, they know what to do. But for the rest of the world who is lost, they get the step-by-step kind of walkthrough through the code. Um, anyway, that has been my approach. So yeah, let's hear what you guys have to say. Well, did I give you time to write down a solution for this, or did I just no. jump into it? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Sorry, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. I wrote it down. What, do you, what did I write? Yeah. I put use analytics to see what search terms are being used and address it that way. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, so look at search analytics. Do you, so do you do that in, in any, I mean, have you got, gotten experiences doing that? Kind yeah, of? yeah, I do do that. I don't, I, I don't do it often enough. I just don't have the time. Yeah. But I, I do that, and then I kind of take some of those terms, and I, I make sure things are in the glossary. I do that kind of global and also a couple of localized glossaries. And then I also um, recommended searches, like um, or recommended results on keyword searches. Oh. I see people are screwing up. I can bubble things up to the top. That's a pretty cool feature. That's a great feature. We were talking about hmm. that on the way down. Yeah. Oh, that's, and, that's and great. tagging your topics with it. You use the same sort of design. Also rollovers. I like rollovers, too. Rollovers? On a oh, term. definitions? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Don't make them go to the glossary. Just yeah. Give them that one oh, okay. And, and you can do that with certain yeah. tools globally. Any place the term is used, it'll insert a rollover on that term. Yeah. Like That's great. That yeah. Yeah, sometimes I link to a glossary term, and sometimes I just reuse it. So I write my glossary terms such that they're portable, and it'll just so I can suck it in. Because sometimes I, I think if you do too many embedded hyperlinks, you get just rabbit trailed all over the place. Yeah. That's my own personal opinion. That's why so I like I the rules. Go nuts. Stay yeah. on the page. It, it's a little page. highlighted so they know that something's going on there. If they roll over it, if something happens. But other than that, it's an unobtrusive to other users that don't care about the term. You know, you know uh, I, was at a, I was at a conference a while ago, and Lou, Lou uh, Rosenfeld, I can't remember. He's really famous in his space. <laughs> Um, he was recommending exactly what you were talking about, Greg, where you look at the search analytics and you figure out what terms people are searching for and use that to build your navigation and such. And you know, I was all jazzed about it, and then I went to look at my analytics, and, and they're like really hard to interpret. You know, it's the scattering of keywords. The only really trend I saw was that people were Googling for errors that they saw. So, so you know, capturing exact error messages was probably my biggest takeaway. But uh, you know, it's definitely like an art to interpreting the analytics and understanding high bounce rate, meaning somebody lands on a page and then they leave your site. What does that mean? Um, they're finding the answer, they're not finding the answer, they like lost, or yeah, they, they, they find it really quickly. Yeah. Like I look at my bounce rate and, mm -hmm. and the amount of time they're on the page, but I don't know what, I don't really have a uh, apples to apples something to compare it against to be honest. Yeah. So I know where, where it runs at and if the trend gets weirder or something, but. Well, bounce rate means different things for yeah. different types of topics. For a landing page, it links to others 
where they're going to eventually find the answer. A high bounce rate is bad. Yeah. If you want them to stay on your site, you go to the next page and get the answer. But for the page that has the answer, the high bounce rate should be good. If they find it, yeah. they're done. Right. And then what can be good? Be good. <coughs> Why don't we jump to level three here? This is another a good one. All right, so this time I'll give you a minute or so to, to write down an answer. That the answer is an isolated task. But the user needs something more. They, they need a, a more connected beginning to end workflow. I'll give you an example. Um, let's, th this is an example Leah Guren gave. Uh, she says, a lot of times if you read your phone manual, manual, it will tell you how to access your contacts and maybe how to make a call. But what about if you're on a call and you want to access your contacts? Like you often don't get that kind of kind of task. So there's lots of tasks that aren't just straightforward that that are in context to one another and larger narratives. So how do you address that? All right, so uh, this is a, a flask that somebody drew in Illustrator. It's actually a pre-made shape symbol. But it's a great example where um, how do you teach somebody to make this? First of all, it involves using the shape tool uh, to draw like circles and other things, the pen tool to draw the flask, flask shape, maybe the refraction tool if you only, only want to draw half of it and then reflect it. Uh, the, the, the swatch tool to get the colors, the radial gradient, the, the stroke. So a lot of times, this is really the world of the users. It's not like, oh, I need to follow step one, two, and three. It's like, oh, this, this task involves doing 10 different uh, things that each have their own help, right? So one of the ways that people kind of overcome this is um, giving beginning to end scenarios. So you take something like this, uh, Decky McClelland, is a, he, he always gives these Illustrator tutorials that are examples. Uh, one of them, for example, he would explain how to draw a cool-looking black cat, um, which has the whiskers and, and things. So lots of different elements that would come into context and focus. So you can kind of take an, an example and lead people through it. And a lot of times, help just doesn't have this, right? They don't have a real, real scenario that has lots of different variables in it. Uh, another example. So maybe a narrative workflow. So let's say that you have, this is an example for like this meeting tool. One time I was documenting this thing, had all kinds of functions to um, manage a meeting. Uh, but people would be lost. They'd be like, well, I don't really even know how to start, what I'm supposed to do, what order. And so we created these little workflow narratives that just walked how a person would use this tool and all the different things. And each of these would link to uh, description and, and explanation uh, in a task way to do each of them. So this is sort of another, another example, just a, a general workflow. I think when we, when we write help, we often forget that people need the big picture. We're so mired in the, in, the, in the product that we forget that people don't even understand what the product would be used for or, or how you'd use it and things like that. This is just another format of a, a high-level task, a yeah. task overview. Yeah, exa exactly. Uh, 
Yeah. That I would invariably buy the best software. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was Go thinking ahead. this, and you know, this points to the classic divide between training and documentation, right? You know, because this wouldn't appear in most online practitioners mm -hmm. the documentation because they say that's not documentation that's training. You know, documentation needs to be straightforward and you know, and one task needs to you know, that yep. kind of thing. But it really is so much more lush, right? And it really does address the problem, which is really is the heart. Not yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. The, the training seems to have different forms that are a lot more, uh, they're different, right, than documentation. And, and this is definitely one of those areas that crosses those boundaries. Um, it, it, it boggles my mind why training and documentation are often in such different silos. I mean, even at my work, it's, it's, it's like that, and we're trying to close the gap. You know, we want training to leverage our documentation, not like create their own. But obviously, they, they probably are seeing gaps. <laughs> they probably would say, well, we'd gladly leverage your documentation if you wrote a bunch more workflows and actual, you know, tutorial type things. And so. also goal-oriented, <laughs> like you were talking mm -hmm. about. Because training is goal-oriented. We're going to complete this task by the end of the day. You're going to yeah. know this by the end of the day. That's a goal, right? Yeah. But we don't <clears throat> approach that often that way. That's like e-learning 101, right? They say, well, let's start. What are the objectives that we want the person to learn and right. define them before we even move forward? Where Whereas technical writers are like, okay, how does it work? What's the user going to do? <laughs> how can I write about this concept? So here's, a, here's another. From oh. recruiter's point of view, yeah. it's also tech writers. We do not want to put them in front of the customers. Trainers, hey, they've got your personal skills. They make eye contact. They're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that, maybe that personal context, you know, an interaction with the user lends toward more of an understanding of what their real goals and needs are. So yeah, it, would, it would help us all. We're allowed to deal with the customers <laughs> and users, and they should be feeding back into the content of the technical writers too. I think, but it's like to me, training is you got the presentation element, the demonstration element, and the hands-on. And the main thing you get from a training course is that's instructor-led. Not as much when it's virtual, but when it, you can walk them through the task, answer the question. That's the main thing they bring to the mm -hmm. table. So we had our training and doc writing joined at the hip for the longest time for years, and then it got busted apart, and there's this big chasm between it. It just, I don't understand that direction myself. Um, I don't think it has to be like that. But it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. So you, you had them joined at the hip for years. What did you do to join them? Or how did, how did you get them working so closely? I, I was the guy developing all of it, the oh. technical writing side and the courses. But the main way I did it was the hands-on lab exercises were on, was our web-based content too. I used hmm. the same thing. So same tutorial oh, okay. self-learner who goes to our website a lot of those things, you know, 20 of those labs or whatever were part of a, of a, of a course, you know, yeah. the instructor-led training. And it, I thought it worked pretty well. There's some downsides. It depends on what your space is and how technical and all that kind of stuff. But it can work really nice. Hmm. And you're then maintaining one chunk of content. And when you're done with that, your course is updated, your lab is updated, and so is the content your users yeah. are seeing. It's just why recreate the wheel over and over and over? Yeah, so definitely. Draw from that same source of content. I think that's yeah. that's huge. Tech support's another group. There yeah. are a lot of these huge interactive publications. There's that should drive the goals, yeah. If, if they give us better information, if they're talking to customers you know, on the phone, they know exactly what they're having trouble with. Mm -hmm. We can beat that up and shut down their call. And if, you know, you just, I've worked places where those two groups 
just don't, you can't get them to talk to you. you know? hmm. No way. That's a, that's you could, we could have a whole like presentation on you know collaboration in different groups. I, I it is critical. It's so easy as a tech writer to, to just like sit in your cube and not interact with other groups because you know they have their own kingdoms and you've got your own. You know it's it's easy, but it shouldn't be that way. All right, one other uh, one other way that you can you know make it so tasks aren't like these isolated things separate from each other <coughs> is to link to other relevant topics, which. Um, totally brings up all kinds of uh, uh, like problems, right? If you're doing data and you're putting all your links in relationship tables because you may want to reuse that top paragraph and not require whatever it links to and things like that. Um, but it, it's really difficult to, to have a linking strategy where that has you putting links in places that uh, aren't like expected. Um, yeah. Or like if you're talking about a product and say there's a tutorial for this, but then there's no link until like the very bottom where you have a related information it can be difficult. So how do you get around that? You said you work with data and relationship tables. How do you put links in the right spots without uh, creating all kinds of dependency issues? Stuff I have control of. I give most of the installation upgrades yeah. and stuff. Uh, and so I have the control. I just put in Excel. And I can, I don't subdivide that map so much that I have to. Mm. Yeah. The, the guy I mentioned earlier, Mark Baker, says he's trying to develop like an alternative linking uh, mechanism in a structured authoring environment that would try to overcome some of these. Like he's that passionate about it. Uh, I don't know if it's going to ever work or whatever, but anybody else have any thoughts on this? Okay, let's go to level four. Right? Help sticks with the obvious only. Have you ever, I'll just uh, explain this a little bit. Um, maybe you've gone into a help system. And I, I hate to bring up bad examples because it always comes back to haunt me. But uh, I love TechSmith products, Snagit, Camtasia. But whenever I go into their help, I rarely find the answer, right? Their, their core help. Usually you can find it through the other kind of related help stuff, through their forums and their support, but not like their core documentation because they translate it and they don't want to like, you know, have this bulky weight. But as a result, I rarely go in there because I'm not going to find my answer. So how is it that you can go beyond just the simple, obvious, you know, print. Oh, this prints the document or, you know, name. This is your name kind of documentation. I'll give you a minute to scribble something on your paper. Think about a solution. This topic is really probably the one that excites me the most. Just because my current role, I feel like I've got so many um, possibilities to go beyond the obvious and, and, and yet so many shortcomings in my ability to do so. Um, I, I mentioned that I, I do like some JavaScript SDK documentation. So these JavaScript developers who know JavaScript, you know, like the back of their hand, they write these big long code examples 
and and then my challenge may be to explain how that works, like how, how does, is this put together? Or they don't even write the code examples, they just have like the API and they say, why don't you draw this uh, you know, progress bar with this you know, percentage here and make it so it does this and that. And so again, I'm like, okay, I can, I can do the obvious, but how do I go beyond that and get like really insightful, especially when it's something that involves programming or, or something very complicated. I have found, uh, let me jump around here, the two sites have been really helpful if you've never heard of these, uh, you really should check them out. One is Safari Books Online, and th this has all the technical books that you could ever want. Um, and the subscription costs like $40 a month, but your library probably has a free link to it. Uh, so in mine, the Santa Clara Library has like a portal of resource databases. You just go and access it online, not at the library, wherever you are, and you can totally see all their books. It's great. Um, Lynda.com is another good, good one. They're all video tutorials, but very, very helpful. Uh, there's even another one called Safari Flow, which is like if you're doing a lot of web stuff, Safari Flow is more specialized. It's a subset of Safari regular books uh, that just focuses on web development because that's like the hot thing. But <clears throat> I, I, I use this technique <laughs> called the Pomodoro Method where you take a, a little kitchen timer, I don't have a kitchen timer, I use my iPhone, but uh, search for a Pomodoro app and <clears throat> um, set it for 25 minutes and throw yourself in whatever kind of uh, technical thing you're trying to learn for 25 minutes and then stop and go do something else for a while. And yeah. if you chunk things up like this, at least for me, it's super helpful. Um, try to do several Pomodoros a day in whatever you're trying to learn. Right, so for me, when I f first started my job, I was totally heads down in JavaScript, just trying to understand it. And, and this method really worked. The, the other thing that is really quite helpful is to start like at a relevant context. Don't just uh, go anywhere, right? You wanna start with something you're actually working on at work. Let's say you have some code example, you see some unfamiliar terms, uh, and so you look those, those methods or functions or whatever they are up and, and learn there. And that makes your learning a lot more relevant and, and real. Um, so I totally recommend these sites. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is that <clears throat> we don't just go beyond the obvious for the sake of it, right? You, you start with whatever problems the users are having um, and, and go from there. It wouldn't make sense to document some insanely complicated, convoluted method that nobody's asking about, nobody's getting stuck, nobody's using, um, just for the sake of it, right? So, so as you mentioned earlier <clears throat> about the importance of the support people, they're the ones that should drive kind of what uh, direction uh, needs documentation or what kinds of things need documentation. Um, and yeah, Andrew. Uh, <coughs> does anybody use Doc? Like, was this topic useful, surveys, anymore, or is it kind of a myth? Uh, I don't personally use them. Um, we have like feedback on our docs and people sometimes give it. I think I've asked <clears throat> people before, uh, like at Microsoft, if, how those go, but uh, I, I don't have a clear answer. Does anybody have, have a good answer? No answer, that's all time you should search people. Yeah. Yeah, that was just yesterday. 
Well, what do you do if you're looking through your support logs? For example, at our work, uh, they use Salesforce, right? And so I've looked through their, through their logs. And sometimes, in fact, a lot of the time, the, the questions are about like a specific edge case or you know, something didn't calculate correctly. Some developers got to run a custom script to repopulate things or you know, analytics is down and out or somebody's missing data. These abnormal edge cases that don't really seem like they're a good fit for documentation. What do you do with all these uh, these scenarios that you know are, are what's they're, they're what support has to deal with, but it doesn't seem like it fits. Knowledge base. Knowledge base. Yeah. Okay. Knowledge base. Keep them keep them out of the documentation so they're not cluttering the way that Yeah. But the, it, it's a trade-off. If you try to pull in the, the lower frequency edge cases, pretty soon you have a phone book and it's not <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's, it's just overkill. And it's very expensive to get each additional percentage point. Yeah. With, versus the first 80% that we've got now. So, so that's, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good technique to keep in mind, right? The, um, you know, 20% of the... The, the problems are will answer 80% of the questions users have, so that's good. Anybody else have anything they want to share from um, from this uh, challenge about like going beyond the obvious? Well, depending on how you've defined obvious, I mean, that wasn't really clear to me, but you know, maybe that means you're documenting very small tasks that they could probably figure out how to do on their own. Um, maybe the answer to that would be to give them the why. Why would you want to perform mm. this task? What can you get out of it? How does it tie in with other things? And, and you know, it links to that larger concept. Yeah, excellent point. Yeah, definitely, definitely um, second that. All right, uh, let's go to level five. Okay, poor SEO hides the answers. Um, the user searches, but the help system just has a terrible search engine and, and the answer is not surfacing. This is, this is a, a topic that uh, I'm not even sure how to handle because I think a lot of, a lot of tech com is um, not really, they don't take the web seriously. I, I guess I shouldn't generalize like this, but I wrote a few posts on this and, and one of them, the first step in any kind of SEO is to avoid frames and iframes. Because if you, um, let me give an example. There we go. So this is a, a help I wrote at a previous company, and I, I was using Flare, and I forgot to select this little option that says put link to TOC navigation in standalone help. Uh, this is some kind of, th this will put a link at the top so that a user clicks it and it will invoke the table of contents. You may wonder why, why would you need that, right? Well, it's because uh, Flare, at least in their version I was using, use, uses a, an iframe. So an iframe will basically cobble together your table of contents in one file, your regular meaty content in another file, and maybe like a footer in another file. Well, Google sees this as three separate pages. So this is what Google sees. They don't see the table of contents. Uh, and you get all these, these kind of disconnected sort of entities floating around. Google hates frame sets. There's, there's a lot of, there's worse frame sets where you don't even get a different URL. You know, it's just a static URL for every page in the, in the site. 
And that's how a lot of um, tripane help used to be. But if you're using any kind of tripane help, uh, look to see what it looks like in Google. You know, does a user get the full page or are they getting only part of it? Because um, a lot of the tripane help fails at this. Uh, another thing is to consider duplicate content. So we hear all the time about single sourcing. And if you single source the same material to different online outputs, how does Google look at that? Well, Google will take and give you a variety of results. So this is an example. If you type in search engine optimization, why I didn't just take a screenshot, I don't know. <laughs> I was kind of going crazy in Illustrator. Um, if you type in search engine optimization, these are the top seven responses you get. Actually, now I remember why I didn't take a screenshot. Because at the top of these, there's a list of paid search results, which extends down. And then on the right, there's like other advertisements. So you don't even get very much real estate. But the organic or natural search results involve these seven. Notice there's only one source that's repeated. It's going to give you a variety. They don't want to give you seven different versions of the same topic. That would be dumb, right? They're never going to do that. So if you're single sourcing your content, uh, to four different audiences online. You've got a developer audience, you've got a marketing audience, you've got a sales audience, and you've got kind of a similar page that's common to all of them. Maybe it's about the wi configuring widgets. Google will only serve one of them up. And you can tell Google which one to serve up by putting something called a canonical link tag on the page. And then Google will say, oh, this is the one that should be in the canon of search results. But um, in general, single sourcing online is going to fail with SEO unless you identify which one you want surfaced. So the, the one that's repeated is, is number two and three. Um, because Google is smart enough to say, to recognize a PDF versus an online page. So there's actually duplication there. One's like a big old PDF guide on SEO, and the other's online help experience. But um, so so this, this always like bugs me whenever people talk about you know, single sourcing. I'm like, well, what is the online experience of that? They're, they're finding one of your many outputs. Of course, many of the other outputs could be print, so they don't care, but something to consider. Um, another thing is to just look and see how Google is serving up your content. There's an easy way uh, if you just type the word. Well, this assumes that your content is even online, right? Uh, all our content is behind a firewall, so it's like a moot point. But if your content is public, you can just type site colon and your domain and then the keywords, right, and do a Google site search. And you'll see how Google is kind of recognizing and prioritizing things. Um, you can also buy like Google custom site search and put a little embeddable widget on your, on your, in your help. And you can always see Google results. And if you pay them $100 a year, you can remove the ads too. So the, the, uh, the takeaway, though, is to just look and see how is, how is Google kind of recognizing and treating the help content. Um, yeah, what do, you, what do you guys think about, about this? Uh, well, how do you get around this problem of, of SEO? Like, is this, is this even in the tech writer's sort of domain of, of concerns, or is this like something for the marketing department? It should be in our concern if we have web-based content. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and totally should be. Um, why is it that you think a lot of times, you know, people people overlook it or they can't overlook it? Did you have a comment? I thought I saw a hand kind of go up. Uh, yeah, 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 but it's not decent. Okay, go ahead. Just <laughs> offer it up. Uh, the enterprise 
because the I'm looking for now, my manager actually says, well, I never use our search engine. I always go out and use Google. <laughs> and I thought, well, that seems awfully silly. Why don't they use Google's search engine then? You know, and it's true. I can never find their documentation on their website. Mm. But if I go out to Google and perform the search, it comes up every time and it gives top I think that, that's a universal problem. What does it cost to get Google's capability embedded in your... Well, this is the problem. Even if you embed Google, you're not going to get the Google experience. This is because Google calculates its, its search engine results based on how many links point to the different sites. So if I have... It, a lot of people, for example, pointed to this one post I wrote about, like, does data fragment information into a million pieces? So now whenever I do searches for data, I've come across this post. But if I were to take all my content and put it behind uh, in an enterprise or something where I don't have these links pointing to it, Google's algorithm just kind of loses steam. It's, it, it's going to be, yeah? But uh, maybe, in, maybe behind a firewall, but uh, we, for Docs is published, eventually when it's not get released, it will go on public websites. And it has a built-in search, which can't find squat. And you want to find something, you go out to Google, and you do site colon com or whatever, and, and boom, there it is. Or you point it, you can point it down further before the <coughs> search is in the, the little dot corner of the website. Uh, and does much better, so whatever it's basing it on, it's doing better from outside than the internal search engine does by well, far. I mean, Google, it's... um. They've got how many engineers refining their search, right? And all this kinds of natural language logic going on. <laughs> but don't they make that available for fees, you know, where... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, I, think, I think you can buy, like, some kind of Google appliance that will install the same thing. But, but the problem is help content just isn't uh, sexy enough to link to, right? It, Google's whole theory is based on backlinks to your content. And if you remove that, I don't know how smart it's going to be. Especially if you have a bunch of like short help topics that maybe you know aren't going to be uh, enticing to link to or something, it may be even more problematic. It works pretty well. Like I Does went it? from Lucene to Google Appliance. Actually, we did yeah. have Appliance, but we had the software on it. We weren't behind yeah. the firewall. So and and then back to Lucene again. One thing that the users missed was the familiarity because everybody's out on the web and they're just using Google. Yeah. So when I did go back to Lucene, it's like oh, the format's a little different. You know, it just yeah. even that is enough to upset some people. But I used to do a lot of manual, like I you know, do a search here, do a search there. We're using Lucene and Google on our site, and and, and the, the answers were pretty close, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, when oh I that's did good. It, that was, yeah, hmm. I was surprised. Well, the other thing that, that kind of um, makes this topic difficult is that I think if you really want to excel on the web, right, you want to play like the web search game and optimize your content, you kind of need a web platform. A lot of these web CMSs are really optimized and architected for high high visibility. Um, everything from like how the title tag gets written to, to other content. Um, but sometimes getting content out of a tech writing uh, environment, if you've got it in Dita, for example, trying to get it into something like Drupal or WordPress or Joomla or some other web CMS, is hard. Um, we've been looking for a connector to try to move from like the structured content into Dita and we're gonna have to pay somebody to, buy, to build one. Uh, so, you know, there's, it's really a lot of challenges there. So, um, it's a lot to think about. Any other last comments on SEO before we move to the next, next one? Okay. 
Not enough examples. There's just one, one more level after this, so make it count. Right, the help doesn't provide concrete examples that make the concepts understandable. This was 52%, the highest of any answer people gave. And, and this really kind of surprised me. I didn't think examples, examples were really that important, but they are. So what can you do? Yeah, what can you do to... to <laughs> so I, I was at a previous presentation and... Uh, Somebody offered a comment. They said, <clears throat> they said a lot of times technical writers aren't, um, well, man, I, I, he already corrected me once for misquoting him. Uh, they, they don't, they're not qualified to write the examples. They're not qualified to give strategic insight examples. So let me give, it, let me give an example. So let's yeah. say you're, you're documenting WordPress, just for something familiar, and you're, you've got the timestamp functionality on the right. It doesn't say timestamp, but where it says publish immediately, if you, if you change that to like, you know, uh, the next day at 2 p.m., <clears throat> your post will go live at that date, right? Very common. Well, if you were giving an, an example, maybe you would be prompted to include some strategy, like why would somebody do this? You know, why not just publish immediately? Well, you could be in China. You could be optimizing for the 11 a.m., uh, visibility hour when it's like the most popular time to publish a blog post. Um, so as soon as you start to give an example, you often get your foot into strategy, right? And that's where a lot of times technical writers are like, whoa, I'm not qualified. <clears throat> I know in my role, um, we document a lot of gamification stuff and we mostly stick with the technical how-to of it. You know, here's how you create a reward, here's how you do this mission thing, but what companies really look for is, okay, in what context is a mission going to work, and how do I, you know, build intrinsic motivators, motivation into this, and you know, is this going to be right for an e-commerce audience? You know, a lot more strategy, and and that's the kind of stuff where we say, you know, what these guys, they're they're based in psychology, psychology theory, they they know this industry really well, so we're not even going to add that kind of you know recommendation about whether to use a mission or not for this or that audience. Um, but our help is the worst off for it. Um, okay, Andrew pointed out that if you're doing reference documentation, what you really need is a lot of code examples. <clears throat> and so if you've, if you've worked with like APIs or anything, um, a lot of times they, they will list the nuts and bolts of how they work, what are the calls you can make, the parameters, but then actually finding code examples of how you bring it to life on a page is usually something that is, is extra. Um, this is a screenshot from a post by Sarah Maddox, who works for Google in Australia. And she's talking about how she refactored the Google Maps API to show some code examples. And just really simple things. Um, I mean, that's 30 lines of code or something with some comments, but it gives a lot more like context. But again, these are tricky because I know that when I try to give JavaScript code examples, the developer reviews them and he'll say, oh, you're making too many calls, we can reduce this down here, and this isn't gonna be performant, and why are you using this method, you use this one? You know, so it's like, you know, it's, it's again, I'm kind of getting out of my, my comfort zone, but at the same time, that's what, the, what people need. Uh, one more example, or one more point. So, in addition to giving examples, you can try to, try to be, uh, be an example by, by doing things yourself, right? Trying it, testing, exploring, being the user. 
um, making this, this step out of this comfortable tech writer world into the user's world and seeing how they use it. Eating your own dog food, as they say. Well, we are the user advocates. Yeah, so yeah. That's the best thing we can do for them. As, as soon as you become one of your users, a real user, it kind of opens up a lot of perspective. Of course, it's a lot easier to say than do, especially depending upon your product, right? Uh, this is where you leverage your customer-facing colleagues. You know, the field teams that implement it for customers that support the people who know how it's done in the real world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So see through the eyes of, of the people who are interfacing with the customers. I've been wanting to implement like some of the gamification stuff on my own blog. Actually, it's one of my one of my uh, projects I would love to to try at some at some point. Um, but but just think about ways that you can try try out different things. I mean, uh, it works well in some situations and others don't. It doesn't. Uh, so example so yes what comments. Do you think about examples. Do not just put code examples and say you'll get it. <laughs> comment 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 over comment. Because there are a lot of people who would like to get it who won't. <coughs> I'll just say, I'm asleep now. You've completely <coughs> lost me. I don't know why you gave that example, and I don't know what it's supposed to prove other than you talked to the developer and I didn't. Yeah. yeah I always do that. I always put a lead in. This example does this, sets this to this, or whatever it's doing. So they know, so they can go down. And then I, I bold in the, you know, make the function that we're talking about on that page bold in the example so they can get to it or you could use colored mm -hmm. examples like they do with the so so we know the right. the value of examples but a lot of times if you if you give the engineer the code to review and he or she says ah oh, they're going to totally get this they don't need this information what do you do then when the you may be at a disadvantage because you don't have the same like engineering level of expertise and the engineer is blind to how difficult the code is, and it's just like, oh, the, you know, any JavaScript developer worth his or her weight is going to understand how to use these APIs to construct the calls and build the visualizations, and then it never happens. So, what do you do? Tell them that it's going to be better, better off to have that example. That is well, That's why <laughs> online reference is important. If you're a real yeah. developer and you already know Ruby or Perl or Python or whatever you're dealing with, you, you don't need any of that. You, but you do need an online exhaustive reference of the entire API, and a real developer just goes there. They very rarely will look at examples. I think the target audience for most examples are developers who are kind of, or people who are kind of dabbling with the API, and they, they need the core concepts and all that, and some real examples that are building block type stuff. And the real core hardcore developers are going to breeze through that, if at all, and blow onto the. That's what I've found. And, but my challenge, what I found, I wrote a bunch of stuff manually, all bash curl kind of stuff. And when I was done, it was like, you know, but I'm more of a Windows user. So uh, where's the PowerShell? Oh, shoot. So now I'm forced with, you know, kind of, I've got the, the, the kind of the Unix users and then the PowerShell Windows guys. And now we've, we've got a, a RESTful client, a right API client thing. And that's, that's all Ruby based. So now I've got all these different examples and it's really high tech, high maintenance. If you go beyond the core stuff, you're. I just don't see how you could come up with and examples for every advanced, use case. Advanced programmers, like you're talking about, but you know, a lot of those they're guys will go in and they'll just grab that whole example and paste it into my, their code. My, actually, the bash stuff that I've got, you literally can copy the whole thing, paste it in that's there, change the, a couple of variables, right. and you're setting it run. That's see, it. that's the most important thing yeah. about coding examples, I think, is that it can be used. 
And those yeah. are my clients are asking me for writers who can do it. So oh. Maybe that'll be my next job. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the answers for <laughs> I probably should. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Okay, great, because we're on the last one. All right, level seven. Long text buries the answer. So, so this kind of contradicts the very first one where information was fragmented. But you can see, anyway, this is another reason. People think the pages get so long and, and people don't like these giant walls of text, right? So there's actually very easy ways around having long pages that are still very readable. And you guys know what they are. One, use subheadings, right? If you go into any store, any grocery store, they've got subheadings on every aisle that tell you where to go. We do the same thing. If you, if you can work in images, even better, right? Uh, but, but basically, subheadings make it extremely easy to navigate. Um, and, and they make writing a lot easier because you can just bolt on another section. You, know, you don't have to worry about like, transitions between the two. You just throw another section in there, right? That's, readers are just going to jump around anyway. Uh, you can provide on-page TOC navigation. So, so have a little list at the top that's automatically generated based off your H2 levels or something. And the biggest one is to add visuals. Um, I, I am a big fan of visual uh, communication. I think that um, you know, if, we're, if we're documenting something complicated, it's more work to try to explain it all through text. I like to add lots of um, pictures. And they don't have to be advanced illustrations. Like uh, th this little one in the lower right, for example, it's what, a little cloud, some circles, and some shapes. And if you, if you put a, a word below them that, that, that describes what it is, people are fine with that. Um, if nothing else, visuals kind of give some balance and, and, and space between the textual explanations. Uh, but I think a lot of times we don't add them for two reasons. One, people say, oh, I've got to translate it, blah, blah, blah. The other is that a lot of us think that, oh, we can't, we can't draw, we can't, we're not good artists, and so forth. But really, um, they've done studies about, about what, what make effective visuals. And you know, they compared like a photograph of an engine, for example, in a car manual, versus a line drawing that just minim minimizes the components with very basic uh, drawing. And, and when you can minimize it and have fewer things for the visual, for the mind to process, it's clearer. You can get a point across. Um, I love working in Illustrator. I mean, I. I to do my little slides in Illustrator just as fun. One, one thing that is a, a lot of fun, you should try this out, it's called sketch notes. Have you heard of this? Next time you're in a meeting, if you want to stay awake, take, take a notebook and a piece of paper and try to draw the concepts that the person is talking about. Like try to illustrate, figure out how can you illustrate a, a risk or whatever you know, abstracts are going on. And it's really challenging because all through high school and grade school, we're taught words and, and how to use words, but we're not really taught how to develop our visual imagination. So sketch noting is a great exercise in like increasing your visual imagination. And it totally keeps your attention. It, it, it's, it's how I often stay awake. All right, so that, those are all the levels. Just to sum it up, um, remember at the beginning, I said the evolution of help material should get better and better. And I think if we focus on some of these best practices, it will uh, result in, in better content. So number one, write independent help articles based on goals, right? This is, the, this is helping you avoid information fragmentation, having complete kind of articles that are based on a goal. 
Number two, teach users the right terms to use, right? You've got complicated terms, however you do it, add them in there. Include end-to-end -end tutorials and workflows, not just, not just your basic task or concept. Uh, link to other articles where relevant. Provide solutions for re the real problems that users face. Make sure the search surfaces the right results. Uh, include plenty of examples, especially if you're working with code. Continually learn um, advanced technology each day. Try to include visuals to illustrate complicated ideas. And finally, break up long content with subheadings. I, I'm going to pin this up next to my like computer just as a checklist. And I guess now that I look at this, I don't have as the right number of checks. But <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so so I really think this is one way to kind of focus on the content. And and my my biggest um, recommendation is to not get swept away into becoming a, a publishing expert, right? And being the guy who knows all the ins and outs of the tool, but but doesn't really have much passion for the actual content because I found that um, writing documentation actually gets more interesting the more I get into the content, especially the programming world, which is a whole different landscape. Um, and it's a lot of fun that way. Okay, so my blog is I'd rather be writing.com. I'm on Twitter at Tom Johnson, and you're welcome to contact me any way you want. Uh, I appreciate the time you've given me, and I'll put this recording on there, and you can add comments or whatever. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.